0: And now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Welcome back. So do you want to bust some divorce myths or what? (laughs) My guest today is Eric Broder, and he is a divorce attorney. He is one of the top divorce attorneys. He's selected as a Connecticut super lawyer in family law every year from 2013 to 2020. And every year, no more than 5% of the lawyers in the state are selected to receive this honor. So he's amazing. He is uh, just a phenomenal, a phenomenal resource. You've probably heard him on Susan Guthrie's podcast. Uh, We had him on our live stream that I do every Monday with Ben and uh, Ben and Susan. And if you don't know about that live stream, by the way, every Monday at five o'clock Eastern, two o'clock Pacific, Ben held fond of our happy divorce and Susan Guthrie and I host a guest And we have amazing conversations about divorce, and it all happens on the Our Happy Divorce Facebook page, and I usually actually also stream it into my uh, private Facebook group. So um, mark your calendars for that every Monday, 5 p.m. Eastern and two o'clock Pacific. So Eric was our guest a few months ago, and I just loved him. And we decided to do an episode on busting divorce myths. So if there are things that you have heard, there are things that you believe to be true. There are things that you, someone has told you. Um, we're going to bust the top myths today. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the amazing, talented, and super smart attorney, Eric Broder. Eric, thank you so much for joining us and talking about busting these myths.
1: There are a lot of them.
0: (laughs) Divorce myths. (laughs) For those of you who may have missed it we had Eric on the live stream. We had a really great conversation on our, our Happy Divorce live stream, but we're going to, we'll link to that in the show notes, but um, we're going to continue that yes. conversation and yeah, bust some divorce myths. So first of all, do you want to tell people, I mean, I, I introduced you in the intro, but you want to just sort of tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. Sure. Um Eric Broder and I am a Divorce lawyer, family lawyers, sounds a little better. This is, we're located um, in Connecticut, Southern Connecticut, Fairfield County, more suburban New York City. A lot of people live here and commute to Manhattan. There are seven lawyers in my firm, and yeah, this is, this is all we do 100% of the time. So I always tell people if they want to close on their house, I'm the wrong guy. Go somewhere else. <laughs> yes. D- divorcement so the number one enemy of my business is I call it cocktail talk it's when people come in here and tell their neighbor's alimony deal or their friend got this house or their friend this and um I-, I tell this it's 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 the biggest my biggest pet peeve and penalty because you know it's it's each case is different and unique and there are certain factors and I always tell this story and it's a good one to lead off with and you may have heard of me Kate but I represented in Connecticut when you get divorced you go into the courthouse and the judge approves the agreement and reads about the agreement. And I represented a woman. It was long marriage, you know, twenty-five years and multiple kids, and she was not employed outside the home. And the judge highlighted the agreement, went over it with the parties. And part of the deal was my client wasn't getting alimony. No, very little, a, a sparse amount of alimony. And another lawyer in the courtroom runs out in the hallway to grab me and goes, "What? How? how my client is wants to bust up his whole entire divorce deal. How did this?" lady not get any alimony and it sounds great right my client's husband is saying i'm not paying i'm barely paying alimony to my wife of 25 years well what they neglected to realize was that my client was getting a trust that threw off hundreds of thousands of dollars a year of income that she was going to be able to live off of the rest of her life which was better than <laughs> alimony because if he loses his, there's no right. alimony if he passes away maybe there's life insurance so it's a myth so there's a guy out there telling his friends he's not paying alimony and here my client is saying i'm not getting alimony look what she got So I always tell people to be aware of cocktail talk because there are a lot of myths out there as to what really happens. And when you live in an area like where we are in Connecticut, where I can literally be in five states in a matter of a three or four hour drive, each state is uniquely different. New York law and Connecticut law are different. Connecticut is different from Massachusetts, which is different from Rhode Island. In bigger states like your state, it's obviously there are differences within counties often too. Even within our small state, different courthouses have different biases, or different expectations. In the Stanford courthouse, where you have a lot of extreme wealth, hedge fund wealth, towns like Greenwich that people know, and Westport and and Darien, for a person to ask for $30,000 a month alimony is not unusual. But you go into other places like Danbury, Connecticut, for example, where there's a, a lesser concentration of wealth, or Bridgeport, Connecticut, the judges there will look like you're crazy if you ask for the same amount of money in the same amount of case. So be careful and really listen to your lawyer Your lawyer, you, how it is? Yeah,
0: I think that's. I hear that so often too. Well, and especially, you know, I run a Facebook group with thousands of women in it, and you'll hear people saying things like, "Well, in my my divorce, I got this, or I did that," and I'm like, I always I have to step in and say, "Hold on, (laughs) consult with your attorney, consult with an attorney in your state. This is right in your state." doesn't matter mm-hmm. what other people did. Everyone's situation is completely different. And I wish there were yeah. I wish there were more consistent divorce laws. Sure, yeah. I wish I wish we had a really clear-cut way of doing this throughout the throughout the country, but mm-hmm. that's just not how how we operate. So yes. All right. So don't get your divorce advice from cocktail talk. That's a huge one. Yes. Let's yes. talk about the fault versus no fault. Because everybody yes. thinks, right? We all everyone always says Will all the states of the union are no-fault states now.
1: Mm-hmm. But. <laughs> but is a bit, it's a a big but. So just down here in Connecticut versus New York. So it used to be you needed a reason to get divorced. You had to prove that your spouse, for example, had an affair or there was a somewhat of an abandonment or there was some physical abuse, for example. You had to overcome that hurdle just to get a divorce. That's all changed. That's why we say no fault. You can wake up and decide you don't want to be married because it's, you know, it's Thursday and you can get divorced. But fault in certain states actually can matter. So in Connecticut, for example, issues of affairs can come into play. Issues of abuse, physical, emotional abuse, issues of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, all those things can be taken into consideration by a judge in determining how the assets are divided or how alimony is awarded. New York, it can't. Now, the one exception: if someone spends money on a boyfriend or girlfriend and buys a boyfriend a ten thousand dollar watch, hypothetically, that's a dissipation of marital assets. That's wasting marital assets, mm. so that get a credit for. But if you had an affair with someone, the judges don't want to hear it. Some people think that's easier. It certainly makes for less interesting divorce cases and depositions. <laughs> right. On our end, it, it does matter. But I, I always caution people: it doesn't. If, if we were in a trial with a jury and there were 12 men and women in, in the town of Westport where one of my offices is located and someone had multiple affairs, you bet that guy or that woman would get about 15% of the assets, see you later. In Connecticut, 55-45 of a split of assets for an affair, for example, would be a big win. And most people, that would be a very big win. Maybe hmm. 60 would be a home run and you need a lot of bad things. I mean, in and out of rehabilitation facilities, that type of stuff. And for most people, I tell them 50% of what you'll have today is really equivalent to 55% of what you'll have after you spend all the money on lawyers fighting it out. So settle the case. Either take 50% now or fight it out for months and months and months, or maybe now with COVID years and years, and you might get 55% later, but the lawyers will get the difference. So um, it does matter. It matters more the day-to-day structure of a case, though. I can tell you, if you have a hurt spouse, they're going to be less likely to want to negotiate as quickly or as fairly, and, and that's understandable. So you have to sometimes let cases lag a little bit or address the issue and say, I'd rather overpay and get out. Right,
0: or hire a divorce coach and, and work on the emotional aspect of it.
1: So that, you... And get someone who's more qualified to handle those, those issues and less expensive and is going to be able to, yes, that's actually great advice because then you're not bogging your lawyer down with those things. Either. Right,
0: exactly. So, right. right, exactly. Or Right. Exactly. So it's really interesting. Right. So like, even in a fault situation, even in a state where it, where it matters or where it can matter, doesn't matter a whole hell of a lot. Right. It's like, right. It's not as angry and as furious and as justified as you feel. The court is just not going to get behind you and be like, yeah, (laughs) let's
1: stick it to him. Not, not much, not as much as you would expect them. (laughs) I mean, there are those types of cases. If you spend money on someone though, and I don't mean going out to dinner, but substantial amounts of money, the court's going to say, well, you bought her a pair of earrings for $20,000 or something. Obviously the, your, your wife will get a credit for the purchase because she didn't want your girlfriend to have those earrings. Right,
0: right. right. You're spending marital assets on that kind of thing, but right. That does, that makes perfect, perfect, perfect sense. But, but it does um,
1: also yeah. make the cases, it's tougher to sometimes, re, cases are tougher to resolve when someone's having a relationship because you're dealing with the emotional hurt. And that's that's important to know.
0: It is. It's It is. And it becomes, you know, the custody thing gets harder and you don't want your kid hanging out with that woman or, yep, <laughs> you yep. know, all of that stuff. And it is that, but that's emotional. That's not legal. That's correct. Right? That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And those are and, you know, these are the reasons that I always advocate for waiting and not rushing into the divorce process and making sure that you heal those wounds before you start, because not only does it, you know, it's it's not it's not going to get you what you want. You're going to spend a whole lot of money trying to trying to get what you want that you're not going to get.
1: Yep. Right. The, The interesting thing in Connecticut is when you take a deposition of somebody, you can ask about those affairs. And you can ask all those questions. New York, you couldn't. Um, as an, and certain states align with Connecticut and certain states align with New York. It's not you know, universal. Um, and that really creates another level of problems because now there's a transcript and someone's admitting to this relationship. And even though that's fine within my office, that transcript sometimes winds up in a file in someone's house and a kid finds it. I've had adult children find transcripts from divorces and things they didn't know about their parents. So you might have it on your computer. Now it's a little different than it used to be 10, 15 years ago, but people find these things. So once it's in writing under oath, you know, I swear I'm going to tell the truth. And you talk about relationships and affairs can have a lot of damage later on. So I always try to keep those off the record as best as we can.
0: That's really, that's really great advice. Right. Do you say that to someone who's like, I want you to investigate all of this. And do you say like exactly what you just said? Like, just think about the fact that this is going to be out in the public domain.
1: Deal. Yeah. I mean, if, if it's a deposition, it's absolutely going to be in your house or someone can find it. As far as going to trial, it's all out there. I mean, right. I can people and look at the divorce agreement or divorce decision and the judges will say the wife claimed the husband was drinking. The husband claimed the wife was having affairs. The court believes or doesn't believe both of them. Who cares? It's now out there. And yeah. now your next boyfriend or girlfriend can find it, your kids, your neighbors, your friends, your community. And believe me, people do. I mean, I hear people talk about things sometimes and I go, how do they know that? And once in a while I'll look up the name and I'll go, well, that's how they knew it. They read the case.
0: They actually read the case. Well, yeah, I have, I know people who in dating will yep. Google the crap out of the person that they're yes. starting to date. Right. And these things come up. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. Yep.
0: Absolutely. All right. So let's move on to another, another myth. Should I get a job? So will it and I, I this happened. This comes up for me a lot with my clients, where if they've been stay-at-home moms, and they're getting divorced, their an attorney will say to them, even like, "Well, don't get a job now because it'll impact your settlement."
1: So I, I, I don't agree with that view. Now that's, I always think a lawyer maybe who's much older would give that advice. Totally,
0: I don't agree either. By the way, for the record, okay, no, I don't no. agree either.
1: And I'm, I'm here. Here's a few reasons. So I can speak to maybe a little more of a wealthier area where there are more, I hate the word traditional, but more old fashioned and traditional stay at home mothers, because if someone makes enough money and they want to do that and that's their decision, great, it happens. Getting a job and and there's a lot of benefits to it. First of all, and I'll speak to our courthouse here where there are three very, very qualified female judges who busted their butts in their legal careers. I knew them when they were lawyers and now and raised families and now they're on the bench. They are going to admire and respect somebody, a woman, for example, who got a job even during the divorce process, even if it's part-time, not working for 15 years, and now I'm working part-time or working full-time. They're going to respect that. Now, would you get less alimony? Yeah, you will. But if you're making $50,000 a year and you were getting $50,000 in alimony, a judge isn't going to say, now you get zero. They wouldn't do that because why would you work? A judge may say, you know what? Instead of 50, he's going to pay you 30 or 35. But at the end of the day, now you have $85,000. Right. That's the 50 you would have had for staying home. He's going to look more favorably upon you. And guess what? Your husband might lose his job in two years or get a substantial pay cut. Something may happen. He may get sick, your ex-husband now. And if that happens, you're not getting that $50,000 anymore. You might even get that $35,000 anymore because he can't work and he can modify and reduce his obligation. For whatever the reason is, we saw that happen with COVID a ton. We mm-hmm. saw it back in 08 when the world kind of fell apart. People were paying huge alimony sums, no more. So if you're working, at least you can mitigate the damages, support yourself, and guess what? You're going to be a lot happier. And set a great example for your kids, right? Mm-hmm. You're getting up and working. I mean, that's, that's a big benefit. So the old rule of don't go to work, don't go to work, I, I, I throw that out the window. I, I want a client that's nothing better than saying, Your Honor, during the divorce process, she got a job.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. I think the court looks favorably on someone who makes a good faith effort to support themselves and then may need some supplementing.
1: Yes. Right. right.
0: But the good faith effort, I think, is really important. And I think you're right. It's important for their self-esteem. It's important for their kids. It's important for uh, it's just yes, it's just important.
1: (laughs) I I, know I I do. I've had it's funny. I've had clients come back to me and Most people don't want to see me when the case is over. I'm sure I'm not a great reminder of a happy time in their lives, but I have run into clients around and I've had clients call me and tell me about their job and about their situation. And the one thing I also hear about it is, you know, divorce is a big change. Now you're split. Now you're living in two separate households. Often, not not all the time, but if that person's in the same house with the kids, the only thing that's changed is somebody's moved out. Mm -hmm. And if they're working, they're still home doing the same thing, but someone moved out. But now they're working. They've changed their everyday life in such a positive way they're around other people they've got you know responsibility and and it's a big self-esteem booster exactly what you said.
0: Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So get a job ladies. (laughs) 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 I mean, look, I have all sorts of feelings and thoughts about women staying home and raising their kids. I'm I'm not against it, Mm -hmm. but the return on the, I think we go into it blindly and the return on investment that we're making is not remotely commensurate with what we put in. That's right. And what we give up. So yep. there's a whole, I have a whole feminist rant about that that I'll save for another time. <laughs> 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 <sighs> so, Eric, our assets always divided 50 50? Is this like California is a 50 50 state? Like, right. does so,
1: that. <laughs> it, I hate answering it this way. It depends, right? <laughs> Some states have different rules about premarital property and inheritances. Those are the two basic, biggest examples. So like New York State, if you bring property to a marriage and you don't commingle it, I don't care what you're worth. You can be worth $1,000 in the joint bank account, and that's it. And have a million dollars that you brought to the marriage that sat there, that million dollars is your money. And in Connecticut, that would all be in the pot. We don't differentiate between separate property. And property earned during the marriage. Now, in that hypothetical, if that's all you had was that million dollars and you're married 25 years, it's going to be 50 50 pretty much. But if you're only married a few years, it wouldn't be 50 50. It might be, I make 80 20, 70 30, who knows? So that's one aspect where the laws are different. But generally speaking, when people come into a marriage in their late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, and they don't have much and they get married and they're married for a long time, it's almost generally is 50-50. We have what we call equitable distribution, and a lot of states do, where they look at a lot of factors, how long you're married, the source of the assets do they come from inheritance, for example, or separate property, and your age and all those different, your opportunity to get employment. But generally, judges have told me, even though they're not supposed to, mentally, they start at 50-50 and say, why wouldn't it be? And often it winds up 50-50, especially in a long marriage.
0: So in Connecticut, Premarital assets are considered marital property.
1: Yes, everything is considered marital.
0: Wow, even
1: inheritances. So, oh wow. The, the but the rule there's we don't have like a chart or a table or a rule, but and some states do this where let's say you're married 15 years and the day before the wedding or the day after the wedding someone died and left you a million dollars, and again you left it totally separate. And now you're worth, you know, making these numbers up, you're worth $15 yeah. million. Well, they might go, ah, $15 million. Everyone gets, they get seven and a half and that person keeps the million because what's it going to make? No big deal. But maybe you're worth a million dollars on your own. And then there's 000, 000 a million dollars of a marriage and a million dollars of an inheritance. Now they're going to say, ah, if I split a million dollars, 500 each, and then I give that million dollars to the person that inherited it, that's a pretty unbalanced division of assets. So some of that will come into play. Well, wow. if it's really, if the inheritance is received later on in the marriage, it's more likely to be more treated separately, but it's all up for grabs and all for consideration. I can tell you that my, the best rule sometimes is if someone gets a large inheritance, that has been in the marriage for a while and we're fighting about it. I always just say, let's escrow money for college for the kids. Let's yeah. take inheritance and stick something for college for the kids. And, and that's usually a tiebreaker, but mm-hmm. other- yeah, like New York, separate property. If kept separate, is your separate property. California, w- once you're married a while, I think it's ten years. You know, it's it's all pretty much community property, and it's treated differently so to that. And there are many, many more prenups. I've seen the a huge increase in them in the last five to ten years, a big increase. You know? Let's
0: let's bust that myth. Let's bust the prenup myth because there's a lot more that goes into a prenup than just. Like who get you know you don't get any of my wealth if we get divorced right. right I mean I think that the the myth about a prenup is that it's like old rich guy and it's like an Anna Nicole Smith situation right right, right. <laughs> and like, right. And like right. old rich guy makes young biddy sign the prenup yes. that says that she doesn't have any access to his b- bazillions right. of dollars if they get divorced yes or if he dies whatever yeah but that's not what prenups are. No, anymore. That's
1: that's what everyone (laughs) thinks they are, right? And that's true. There are, and and that was the most common type of prenup, where you had the older, wealthier guy and the the trophy wife, I guess, and provisions made. Right? That was, but they are far more complicated. People call up, "I need a simple prenup," and then I start asking questions. And let me one one myth to dispel is, prenups can be busted up, no problem. No, they are very, very, very hard to bust a prenup Hmm. if they're properly, people is what they have asset-wise, and people are represented by lawyers. I can tell you now versus 25 years ago, they are very difficult to break apart, unless there's some uh-huh. unseen health circumstance or something that really know they're hard to break apart. But there are a lot of things people don't think about in a prenup. So more and more, we're seeing younger people getting prenups because they were witnesses to their parents' bad divorce. And they want to make sure that if they go down the line, a lot of things are predetermined. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. One of those things would be Commonly, like in Connecticut, we don't have premarital assets. We may separate those at the time of marriage. And you sometimes have people who make a lot of money in a young age, and they want to say, "Hey, I'm bringing this to the marriage. I want that out of the pot." And that's an example of something you might do in a prenup.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I One would do thing that.
1: that, yeah, yeah. I mean, right. I mean, you come right. I mean, people. It's more common. So, a marriage where you have children already, and both parties have children, you want to probably preserve more for children when you have a second. Marriage. And that's not uncommon to do a prenup at that point. One of the biggest considerations in, in those is estate rights. So if somebody dies, if, if, if I have all this money and I say I'm disinheriting my wife, she's the worst person in the world, all those different things, she can contest my will and still get a third of my estate, no matter what. You can't really disinherit a spouse. Uh-huh. So if you're married for a second time and you know, you're in your late 50s you're established, now your spouse has th- the right to a third of your estate. You can waive that right in hmm. a pre agreement. So a lot of times spouses will waive the right because you may want to leave it to your children and you can still leave them 50%. You can leave them all of your estate, but you'll waive the right to claim that they violated these, this one third share. Hmm. So it's okay. a little more interesting. Other interesting things people don't think about, we're getting more in the prenups, but it's is what happens if I own a house and I get married and someone moves in with me, and now we split up. Well, I want them out of the house, obviously, right? So how many days do they have to get out of the house? There's a lot of different provisions that people don't think about when they enter into a prenup. And that's that's a big one. The last wow. thing you want to do is be in the same house with someone when you own that house, right? So.
0: Right. Well, especially if you came into the marriage with the house, right? And it's yep. your but in Connecticut, then it wouldn't be like it would actually still be community. Yeah,
1: without a prenup it'd be a marital asset. So Ooh, wow.
0: That's, that's where it comes
1: in a lot more. That's I amazing. The reason, I have no my only theory for the reason for I think the increased number of prenups is so many more people who are in there. 40s, 50s, 60, 40s, and 50s really watch their parents go through bad divorces because that's when it's sort of there. Your, your hand is up on, on, on the podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> people are skeptical, Me. right? And they they want to avoid that. And yeah. and that's where it comes into play. When I get two very young people without a lot of money for a prenup, then I get a little skeptical. You have no money. What are you doing? You're building a life together. This is not might not be the right way to go about it for a prenup.
0: It's interesting because I think that. One of the things that I think prenups do is that they force people to answer questions that they may not be asking themselves before they get married. And, you know, we kind of think of them as a bit of a (laughs) buzzkill, right? Mm -hmm. But I think premarital counseling does the same thing. And so few of us do that before we get married. And I think it's I have a friend, I'll never forget this. I have a friend who they're about to have a baby or maybe they did have the baby. They've been married for a few years. And before they got married, she was telling me about their premarital counseling mm-hmm. and how it was so hard. It was so in-depth. They covered every contingency. Wow. He had been clean and sober for a while. So like, what would happen if he started using again? What would happen if... And they came up upon these roadblocks that they never imagined that they would, wow. such as like religious, like he was like, oh, well, we're definitely going to raise our kids Catholic. And she was like, whoa, we what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so, right, these assumptions. And I think yeah. that prenups do a similar thing just with 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 money or assets, right, mm-hmm. that yeah. forces you to have conversations you may not have had otherwise that are actually really important conversations to have.
1: Yep. Yep. I don't disagree. Yeah, you're right. It's a good point. It's a very good.
0: point. I also wonder what's going to happen. You know, so f- we're the I think the marriage rate is going down, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, how are these? Do you do people have prenups if they're not actually nupting? N-
1: n- 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 <laughs> no, we, we so it, it, what do we you call that? them? Cohabitation agreements. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. Um, it, it's it's really interesting because the, the family court doesn't have jurisdiction over a cohabitation agreement because you're not married, right? If you're going to challenge that, you're in civil court. It's a little different, you know. You're in there with the personal injury cases and 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 the like, or contract disputes. It's really a contract between two people. It's almost like a roommate contract. Right. Second shelf of the fridge is mine. The third shelf is yours. That kind of thing. (laughs) He ate my yogurt. Yeah, exactly. I had six diet cokes. Now it's five, (laughs) wasn't you? Um. So those those are things that um that we do not often. It's tricky. Sometimes people want to have children and they don't want to get married. And we deal with it that way because financially, if someone says, I'm not going to work, but I don't want to have to move out and have no money and live somewhere with a child if this doesn't work out and you're going to live in our beautiful home, a beautiful home on the water. So we try to make adjustments there. It's it's tricky. It's Those, are, those cohabitation agreements are definitely tricky. One thing about prenups though, you can never make provisions for custody or parenting. So you can't say I get sole custody or you get They're not valid. And you can't make a child support agreement either because child support is always modifiable or changeable. You know, you might say, I'm going to pay X amount in child support. Well, your income could be much more or much less, or a child could have some significant special needs. You just don't know. People always think we could just resolve custody. If we have a child, I'm going to have 50% of the time. No, you can't do that in a prenup.
0: Interesting. Yeah. That's good to know. I mean, obviously you couldn't figure out child support for a child that hasn't been born yet <laughs>
1: but people want to they want all of a sudden, yeah,
0: yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. No, but that's actually that's actually a good point. Even even custody, even percentage of custody. That's you can't interesting. Can do any of
1: that. Yeah. Which is another myth. I I'll, I'll, I'll segue a little bit as to a Yes. Myth. Go for what it. What is cust- what is custody? Yes. Let me most states 99% of people have joint custody of their kids. And that does not mean 50-50 parents. Joint custody means legal decisions concerning the children. Major health, religion, and educational decisions have to be made jointly. And the reason why I can speak to my own state that 99% of people have it is they don't disagree. The children are in public school or private school, can't afford private school or public school. If they need a tutor, generally people get their kids tutors, right? And when it comes to health, most of the time, almost all the time, people agree. If they go to the pediatrician and he or she says, go see this orthopedist, you'll see that orthopedic. The only time you see a little bit of arguing is over therapy. And if you're a product of divorce and one parent wants therapy, you're gonna win that battle. As long as the therapist that you choose is like a, a board certified therapist and not somebody burning incense in the back of the room and playing the bongo drums, right? You know, It's not like <laughs> some spiritual leader, it's gotta be a <laughs> therapist. So not, all the time people have joint custody. And when people say, I, have, I want custody or I have custody, and I explain that, they back off. What, what really is different is the parenting plan, right? That's what they mean. Some people call it physical custody and some people call it what a parenting plan is. And that's where people might have different plans every other weekend, 50-50, different types of structures. So I just, people should be careful when they talk about what custody is or hear people talk about custody. Okay.
0: So, and then, but then let's talk about actual parenting time too, because I hear, I hear all the time from people like in my Facebook group or my clients and, you know, women are like, but I'm the mom. So, um, I should obviously get full, full custody. And what they mean is full parenting time. They want hundred percent parenting time. And, you know, my response to, to that usually is that's usually not how the law works. (laughs) Right. So can we, can you such shed some light on that?
1: When we were growing up every other weekend, I always say it was like Friday to Sunday afternoon and you went to McDonald's on Tuesday night with your father. That was kind of like what I saw friends go through and people go through. So that's not even close to what it's like now, especially since COVID has started. I've seen a lot more, almost 50-50 type plans. And I say that because if two people live in the same community and have work flexibility, it's not impossible to do what we call a 50-50 plan. Some call it a There's different structures. It's not always week on, week off. It's nothing like that. Mm -hmm. It could be a 225, which if some people know what I'm talking about, it could be that every Monday and Tuesday, the kids are with mom, Wednesday, Thursday, they're with dad, and the weekends rotate. So it could be Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, dad, Monday, Tuesday, mom, Wednesday, Thursday, dad, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, mom. Sounds confusing, but it's not. It's
0: not. That's what I do. That's what we've done for
1: years. Yeah. A lot of people do it. It's great. The child knows it's Monday. I'm at mom's. Thursday, I'm at dad's. And then they get continuity of five days in a row on the weekend. And of course, as you probably know, if your child has an activity on dad's day, you can certainly attend and see your child and vice versa. Right. Um, So I'm seeing that plan more and more or closer derivations of that plan where the plans are not mom has the kids all the time. Mm -hmm. Now in a community like like ours where people commute for work to Manhattan or did or hopefully will again soon, it sometimes is impossible to do that because if someone's on a 7 a.m. train, they can't put a child on the school bus. And if they come home at 6 p.m., they can't be there to get a child off the school bus. Right. So then they make different, different arrangements. If people travel a lot for work, you know, obviously they fly around or did, and, and probably hopefully will again soon, it becomes more difficult. But I would say that if I counted up all the days that the working parent or the father had 20 years ago versus today, it would be a dramatic, dramatic
0: And this the idea that the mom is the mom and so she has the right is just not it doesn't hold up in court. That's That's not a legal standing.
1: No, I mean, for a mom to have an extraordinary amount of time, it usually is due to the father's work. And some of the things that people also don't realize is the court can't really legislate everything. They can legislate big issues, but they can't legislate if the child brushes his teeth in the morning or at night, or if the child stays up till nine o'clock or eight o'clock. I mean, I tell people, go get a parenting coordinator, go see somebody, because the child should have consistent rules, right? But sure. Go see somebody, work with that person. If dessert of your house is every night at eight o'clock and dessert doesn't exist in one, get some consistent schedule for the kid. But a judge does not want to hear that. Judges, especially in, in, in any judge, in, in, in your county, in my county, the things they deal with are parents. Go out and leave a four-year-old home alone. That's right. a real issue.
0: That That's they're gonna an going issue. To yes, parents exactly using drugs,
1: not. alcohol. That's a real issue. That's the case they want to hear. They don't want to hear about, well, he lets the kids stay up till 10 30 on a school night and I put him to bed at nine o'clock. They do not want to hear. please you'll get bounced out of there so fast.
0: Well, not only will you get bounced, but also don't call your fucking attorney for that. Right? Because like if yeah. like work like well, you gotta work it out, you write yeah. somehow. And you you either like you ask yourself, how important is it? Mm-hmm. And again, I get it if there's if they're younger, 10 thirty may seem like a really late bedtime, right, right. and you probably what you're what you're wanting is another professional. What you're wanting yep. is a professional to tell your spouse that the way they're parenting is not necessarily in the best interest of their children because they're not going to yep. hear it from you. Right. But your attorney isn't that person, and it, and it's a very costly call, and the, a judge certainly is
1: not that person. Absolutely, and and by the way, attorney isn't as qualified because we don't know your kids. because right. early rise or late I mean, go see a I always call them, we call them parenting coordinators yeah. here or yeah. a social worker or a therapist, and I often try to build that into the agreement in the event a dispute occurs, either parent can go to that parenting coordinator, the parents have to participate before you can file a motion in court because it's an expensive motion to discuss those issues. Right, you know, expensive motion. and look. It's the easiest money in the world for a lawyer. Don't pay your lawyer to discuss issues literally like bedtime or do they do homework right when they get off the bus or can they have a play date before? Literally, those are the calls you get. And when you go to court to argue those things or even you sit in the courtroom for two hours before you're called and you get to bill your client for those two hours of sitting there waiting for case number one, two, three, four to be called. And it is just the judges roll their eyes and look at you. And people people do it. Go to someone who's more qualified. Save the money.
0: So, what do you do when so when your client calls you and is like, "I want to fight this, you take this to court"? Do you like, are you kind of hamstrung, like you kind of have to because <laughs> they're your I client? Mean, like,
1: well, depending on the issue, right? If it's a, if it's a small sort of negligible issue, I explain what it's going to cost and how much time it's going to take, and I'm honest about it, and I explain what the benefit of the result may be, especially with kids and parenting plans. If you file something now, we're not going to file something on Monday. You're not going to court on Thursday. It right. could be four months in normal times before you get a court date on that issue. Right. Kids change all the time. So a nine-year-old's bedtime is different from an 11-year-old's bedtime. And we're going to spend four or five months fighting about this issue and then come back. I'll, I'm happy to do it if that's what somebody wants, but they're going to go in eyes wide open. They're going to know what the expenses are that involve it. And they're not priority issues to a judge. Those, right. those are, they look at our motions, and if they see that, they're not going to give you priority when you're called especially if an emergency arises and they'll bounce you to the back of the line right exactly so, so right more qualified and most people that know look there are situations where you have to where i can have an and this is usually an, an ex-spouse situation where i can have an ex-wife i mean it's a it's a cold sunny day out here today and my client might say that and her ex-husband will swear that it's pouring rain out here right now just <laughs> if that's the case we'll go to court. we'll do it.
0: Right. right yeah 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 totally So, okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. I feel like, I feel like people really want to use their attorneys in the legal system for things that are just, there are, there are, there are people that are better qualified and there are people who can, that are a lot cheaper. Yes,
1: (laughs) absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Another myth. Does one person have to leave the house
1: when the divorce is filed? What do you do? So the answer is no. Um, it's <laughs> hard to kick someone out of a house, even when a divorce is filed. In Connecticut, you need to prove that there's really almost an imminent threat of harm, maybe not necessarily f- pure physical harm, but substantial emotional harm. And I don't just mean yelling and fighting like two people who are getting divorced that don't get along. I mean, really. Right. Yeah. And even then it's very, very hard to get someone out of the house. Now, the old school lawyer would say, stay in the house, make your spouse miserable, and she may be more likely to settle the case. Better advantage to you because they'll do anything at any cost to get you out of the house. My attitude is get out of the house because they keep wanting like to see this. So get out as soon as you can, somewhere comfortable. Don't, as long as you can afford it, too. I mean, if, if you're living in a beautiful big house and you can only afford a studio walk up and you have three kids, that's different. But get reasonable, temporary that you can rent. But I also tell people, don't just leave the house unless you have a parenting plan in place. Because the last thing you want to do is move out. And then sometimes someone will say, well, you can't see the kids, and they won't let you see the kids. And now you're not in the house, so you can't see the kids that often. So I always say, let's jump in right away, figure out a way to extricate yourself from the house, and also get a parenting plan with the kids, even if it's not exactly what you want, something a little more temporary that we can get get into place. So it's not an automatic boot. You don't file and someone leaves the house, not at all.
0: Now, what about abandonment of property?
1: Yeah, abandonment is sort of a misused term. I mean, abandonment means I'm out of here. I'm not paying the mortgage. I'm not paying the bills. And you're not even going to see me. And I'm not being involved in our kids' lives. That's general abandonment. That doesn't mm-hmm. So the word is usually tortured a little bit. But yeah, you, you would then, if you abandon and leave a house, then and you stop providing financial aid, the other lawyer is going to file a temporary motion to get some support, some temporary alimony or child support to for you to contribute to that house. It's a really bad move, though. If I'm your lawyer and you move out of the house, you're going to still support the house where your children live.
0: Sure, But what about, so, I mean, I have a lot of people who get the, I think in certain states, if you move out of your house, mm-hmm. you are sort of relinquishing your rights to the house. No,
1: no, you're not relinquishing title or right. It's still an asset. It's still an asset marriage, right? You're yep. not and even if it's titled in your name and you move out, you're not. okay. that's right. It's still an asset of the marriage.
0: but what are you what is the likelihood of you actually getting the house in the like if you want the house?
1: yeah, that's sometimes I, I will say usually when you leave you're out and you probably aren't going to get the house once in a while that happens. Mm-hmm. It's also an emotional struggle too. Again, more often the woman will stay in the house with the children if she's working part- time or working less. And now you may want that house as part of a divorce and you may even offer a great financial situation, but emotionally, I often find it hard for, in this example, the woman and kids to move somewhere else and you stay in the marital home and the kids come visit you every other weekend, for example, in the marital home. That's tough for the woman to sure, to emotionally address. And that becomes a little bit of a selling of a point. So much so that if we sell a house as part of a divorce, because a lot of people can't afford to keep the marital home, right? Right. If you're doing well and you're working, making money and maybe not saving, but supporting your lifestyle and you're comfortable, now you need two houses Mm -hmm. can rent a second phone bill, electric bill, cable bill. You can't afford to keep that one house. So now you have to sell it. So sometimes I've seen men, sometimes I'm using this particular case, the house went on the market and he turned around and bought it, (laughs) right? (laughs) On the market, we agreed to sell it. I'm the best offer and I'm buying the house. Wow sometimes we put language in there that not neither the neither spouse can purchase it from the other without joint consent or have an agent act on their behalf because i have seen the guy who then starts an llc and calls it xyz llc and guess who buys the house the llc and guess who moves in the house the next week wow yeah. wow
0: we, we with that. that's some cr- that's crazy yeah and also i just just for one of the biggest financial mistakes that women make is fighting for the house, you know, yes. because even if you can afford it now and with spousal support or whatever. I wanted my house so desperately. I was so emotionally attached to my house. I still am. My ex and his wife sold it last year and it was like so heartbreaking to me. Yep, yep. I still have trouble driving down the street that it's on because I love that house so much. Yep. But I I like ran the numbers and I was like, I mean, okay for the next couple of years, but <laughs> yeah. after that,
1: yeesh. I mean, yeah. And you don't know what the market will be when you go to sell it. And that's, that's the problem. So you've got to be really careful. A lot of people, if you have a house worth $400,000 and you have $400,000 in other assets and you keep the house and the, your spouse keeps the $400,000 in liquid assets, that's not good. That's not good. House rich or house poor, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Right. You really need, I always say, especially towards the end of a case, get a financial planner involved. I actually settled the case yesterday. We're bringing somebody in to help my client. She's going to keep the house as part of it because it's doable, not in the long term. So we're literally, she's meeting with a financial person today to tell her to do it while their child who's a junior in high school finishes out. Of school.
0: Yeah. This is, this is a great, a great one for a CDFA to run, the, yeah, run the numbers course, yeah. for yeah. sure. So we were going to also bust the myth of the modern parenting plan. Did we cover, did we kind of cover that a little yeah,
1: bit? Of co- yeah. I think we kind of <laughs> covered that with a 50, 50. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So,
0: okay. Any other, any other, any other myths or anything else that you want to leave people with?
1: I mean, I always go back to my first, the way we started with is just be careful who you listen to. Friends are great support. Somebody like you is terrific because of your wealth of knowledge as a support. But at the end of the day, talk to your lawyer. Let, let them be the one that advises you about what, what happens in your state, in your jurisdiction, what the cultures are. That's the one who's got to tell you how it is.
0: Absolutely. Eric, where can people find you? If uh, if they have questions, are you open to? <laughs> a-
1: absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I have an easy website address. It's www.ctfamilylaw.com, like Connecticut Family Law, CT Family Law. They can click and email me. People do all the time, and I'm always glad to answer. I have a quick call with people. Um, yeah, it's, I kind of like it. It's kind of different. so great. So- yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to answer. We have a bunch of, there are a lot of, we we do a lot, I mean, they're Connecticut specific, but a lot of them range advice-wise throughout the state. Like when I have to leave the house, they, they could be for any state. We have a lot of blogs and good information on our site, basically just culminating with the questions we've gotten from people by email and starting to put the information out there. So
0: oh, good. I'm always
1: happy to answer a question or one of the lawyers in our office definitely will.
0: Eric, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation. This is This is such, such valuable information.
1: Uh, No, thank you. This is great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.